Our passage this morning is Psalm 119, verse 49 to verse 56. If you have a copy of the Scriptures close by, you can open to those verses. Psalm 119, 49 to 56. There is an outline in the bulletin where you can track along with uh, the main ideas that we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, Those of you who have been here the last month and a half know that Psalm 119 is a poem. It's an acrostic poem. It has 22 sections, and those 22 sections are based on the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And within each stanza, there are eight lines of poetry, and that stanza is devoted to that particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet. We're on week seven, so we're on stanza seven. That means we're talking about the Hebrew letter Zion. It makes the Z sound, and the first letter of the first word in each of the lines in this particular stanza begins with Zion. There are, in total, 176 verses in Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, and almost every single verse makes some reference to the written Word of God, to the Scriptures. We have not come to a verse yet, including our passage this morning, where the psalmist does not refer to the written Word of God in a particular verse. So far, every single verse has made mention of God's Word, and the psalmist has used a number of different words to refer to the written Word of God. And I put the most common ones on the screen and in your notes. There are a few others that show up uh, from time to time in Psalm 119, but these are the most common. This variety of words sometimes, you have to be careful, sometimes is used to make a particular point, meaning a particular word is used to make a particular point. Most of the time, I think they're used more or less interchangeably, just for variety and for variation within this very long chapter of the Bible. One thing that we need to get clear on the table before we talk about this particular section of verses is a misconception that a lot of people repeat, a lot of people carry around, a lot of people feel weighed down by, but I need you to understand that the Bible is clear that God many times will give His people more than they can handle so that His people have to rely not on themselves but on God who raises the dead. I'm pulling this straight out of the Bible, and you can look it up for yourself this afternoon. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the opening passage of 2 Corinthians. Paul says to the church in Corinth that he and his friends experienced a great affliction while they were traveling, sharing the gospel in Asia. Affliction is at the heart of what we're talking about this morning in Psalm 119. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 1, we experienced a great affliction. So great, Paul says, we felt as if God had given us the sentence of death. We despaired of life itself. It was above and beyond anything that we could handle on our own power. And Paul says, God put us in that circumstance, in that situation, so that we would be forced to rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And earlier in the passage, Paul says something fascinating. He connects this whole idea of God putting us in difficult situations that are too great for us to manage so that we're forced to rely on Him. And Paul says the reason God does this is that we would learn how God comforts His people and that we would be able to extend that same comfort to others when they're afflicted. So we just need to be done at the outset. We need to be done with the nonsense 
that God won't give you more than you can handle. It's an unbiblical idea. We need to be done with the nonsense where people say to someone who is afflicted, God must think you're really strong to be able to handle all of this. I got news for you. God is not impressed with your strength. He's not impressed with my strength. He's not impressed with our collective strength. He's not impressed with the strength of this church. God, in His mercy, you can expect, will put us collectively and individually in circumstances that are too great for us to handle beyond our capabilities, and He will do it for the very purpose that we would learn to rely on Him, not on ourselves, that we would learn to trust the God who raises the dead, that we would understand how God comforts His people, and that we, in turn, would be prepared to extend that comfort to others. So we've got that on the table. That flows directly into the big idea of this section of Psalm 119, the Zion section. The Word of God provides comfort to the people of God. In this life, you will find yourself in situations where you are needing divine comfort. And the primary place that you ought to turn in those moments is the Word of God, because Psalm 119 is connecting these two ideas. The whole psalm is about the Word of God. This particular section, stanza, is about our affliction in life and the comfort that we find in God's Word. So, take your copy of the Scriptures. We will read this stanza together. You follow along as I read Psalm 119, verse 49. The Bible says, Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Father, as your people, we join our voices to the psalmist. We recognize that you are the Lord and that we are humble servants. Lord, as your servants, like the psalmist, we experience things in life that uh, are too great for us, they're too heavy for us. And so we ask for your help. We ask for your strength. We ask for your comfort. We pray that as we think about your word this morning, that we would see how your word provides comfort to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to just jump right in with an opening question, and the question is why? Why did the psalmist feel like he needed comfort? What was going on in his life that necessitated him turning to the Word of God for comfort? We can't be too specific, but there are at least a couple of answers that we ought to point out in this particular stanza. Why did the psalmist need comfort? Number one, he says that he was afflicted. He was afflicted. If your Bible's open, you see that in verse 50. He says, this is my comfort in my affliction. He's afflicted. The Hebrew word translated afflicted here is a broad, sort of wide-ranging word. It doesn't have a lot of specificity. It tends to describe 
difficult situations in life in the abstract. And so some translations say affliction, some say troubles or pain or distress or misery or suffering. You look at those terms and you realize all of them could be applied to a number of different situations in life, which is the point the psalmist is trying to make. Generally speaking, life is not always what we want it to be. There's things that we experience that are difficult, they're hard, they're heavy, and they fall under this umbrella of affliction. So he needs comfort because he is afflicted. Secondly, he needs comfort because he was being derided. Derided. That's how the ESV translates the Hebrew word in verse 51. The insolent utterly deride me. To deride someone is to mock them. It's to ridicule them. It's to laugh at them, not with them, but at them. And the psalmist says, whatever the details and the specifics were, he says that there are insolent, haughty, boastful, prideful people who are deriding him. If you want a real-life example of that, you could uh, go back about a week ago this evening. Dallas Cowboys were playing the New York Giants. There was a lot of deriding taking place on social media. I have a friend who is in ministry. He lives in Texas, but he's originally from New York. He went to the game, the Cowboys-Giants game. He proudly had his New York football Giants jersey on, and he posted on social media right before the game at the stadium how excited he was to see the Giants win. And what followed in the comments under his post was derision. People laughing at him, mocking him, ridiculing him. The psalmist says that not only is he generally being afflicted, but people are deriding him. It's still a general description, but it is more specific in this sense. Affliction in this life will often be on an interpersonal level. It's a person who's deriding him, an insolent person, a haughty person, a boastful person, a prideful person. And he's experiencing this breakdown in relationships. And you can expect the same. You can expect general affliction to take place in your life. And you can also expect, if you commit yourself to living out and believing the Word of God, on an interpersonal level, people will deride you. They will mock you. They will ridicule you. So he's afflicted. He's being derided. Number three, why does he need comfort? He was surrounded by wickedness. Verse 53, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Again, this is a pretty general description, but I think you can understand what he's saying. He looks around at the people closest to him, the people who live on his block, the people that he works with, the people maybe in his own family. And he says, these people do not live with any regard towards God's word. They are actively living their life contrary to to the principles revealed in the Scripture. And they don't seem to care about it at all. They are wicked people. If you want to know what these people might have been like, we could just walk through the Ten Commandments and we could say these are people who worship other gods beside Yahweh. These are people who have given themselves to the worship of idols. These are people who are using God's name in a disrespectful way. They are taking God's name in vain. These are people who have no concern 
about the Sabbath regulations and the call to worship God with the people of God on a weekly basis. These are people, commandment number five, who are disrespectful, dishonoring to their parents. Number six, they're angry, mean, cruel, murderous even. They're adulterers. They're liars. They're thieves. They're covetous. Those are the kinds of people that he sees as he looks around the world. I don't know if you can relate to that at all, but it's possible that you look around where you work, where you live, your family, the world at large, and you say, I see people doing all of those things, wicked people. The psalmist says hot indignation seizes him because of the wicked who forsake God's law. So why does he need comfort? He's afflicted, he's derided. He's surrounded by wickedness. Number four, he is sojourning. He's sojourning. Verse 54, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. We saw this idea back in Psalm 119, verse 19, where the psalmist identified himself as a sojourner, as somebody who was living in a place where he didn't quite feel at home. The New Testament words used to describe this by Peter or uh, to believers, you are strangers and exiles in this world. Jesus in John 17 prayed in his high priestly prayer, not that God would take his people out of the world, but that he would leave them in the world even though they weren't of the world any more than Jesus was of the world. The world is not your true home. You find yourself in a place where you don't feel at ease, you don't feel like you fit in. And you find yourself longing for another home, a perfect home, a better home. So he says that he's sojourning. He's afflicted. He's derided. Surrounded by wickedness and he's sojourning. How many of you have heard the name Horatio Spafford? Let me just tell you a little bit about this man if you don't know who he is. He lived in the mid to late 1880s. And he lived in the Midwest around the Chicago area. He was a real estate man. And he was fairly successful at it. He had made a small fortune in real estate. And in 1871, the early part of 1871, he took a large part of his fortune and he invested it in real estate in northern Chicago. And if you're a history buff, you may know that later in 1871, there was something that took place in Chicago that historians call the Great Chicago Fire. That fire destroyed almost everything that Horatio Spafford had invested in. It absolutely decimated his net worth, his fortune, his business, his, his means of providing for his family. It was a devastating experience for millions of people, and Spafford was one of them. So it took some time for the Spafford family to get their feet back underneath them again and to feel like they were in a stable place. After a couple years, the family decided that they would take a vacation. And they were going to go on vacation across the Atlantic, and they were going to go to England. Spafford was friends with a man named D.L. Moody who lived in Chicago. And D.L. Moody was in England preaching a series of revivals, and the family just needed a respite. They needed to get away. And so they planned this big trip where the whole family was going to get on a boat, cross the Atlantic, go to some of the services where D.L. Moody was preaching. At the last minute, some of the real estate projects that Spafford was involved in had zoning issues. This was long before you understand Zoom and Google Meet and all that sort of stuff. There was no, I'll work remotely from the boat. Spafford had to stay, but the tickets had been purchased. And so he said to his wife and his daughters, you go, I'll take care of these last minute things, 
and I'll come behind you shortly. So they went. November 22, 1873. The ship that Spafford's wife and four daughters was on was struck by another vessel at sea. 226 people were killed in the collision, including all of his daughters. Annie was 12. Maggie was 7. Bessie was 4. And Tanetta was 18 months old. His wife lived, and she was taken to England. And when she got to England, she sent a telegram back to Chicago. We have a copy of the telegram still today. The first two words that she wrote to her husband are, Saved alone. Saved alone. Spafford took care of his business. He got on a boat. He was crossing the Atlantic. The captain of the ship that he was on knew of the collision that had taken place. It was worldwide global news. It would be like a, a plane crash today, a passenger plane crash. Everyone knew about this. And so the captain of the ship that Spafford was on called him aside about halfway through the voyage and he just told him, this is the spot. This is where, this is where the collision took place. This is where your daughters were buried at sea. And on that boat ride from the United States to England, Horatio Spafford wrote a hymn, and this is part of the hymn that he wrote. When peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So we made it to England, and they reunited, and began walking through the grieving process. The Lord was kind to them. They had more children after this tragedy. Uh, but the Spaffords weren't done experiencing tragedy. We often talk about his wife and his daughters. What we forget is that in 1880, his son, who was born after the accident, Horatio Jr., died at the age of four from scarlet fever. The family ended up in Jerusalem, uh, living in a, a communal-type setting, Resolute in their faith in the Lord. Why do I tell you that story? Why do I tell you that story? Some of you know it. Some of you never heard it. Why do I tell you all of those things that happened to Horatio Spafford? One reason I tell you that story is just to remind you that life is hard. And there are horrific tragedies and suffering and affliction. It's that broad umbrella. Affliction that we face in this life. Really hard things. There's people in our church family who very personally in the last week or two could say, I have felt this affliction, this pain, this suffering. It's real. Spafford's story reminds us that it's real. Spafford's story also reminds us that as the people of God, we can have hope even in the midst of that suffering. That our soul can be right with God in the midst of the greatest grief that rolls over us like sea billows because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. And those two things are both true. Do you know why I do not tell you the story of Horatio Spafford? I do not tell you that story so that as you sit in the room this morning, you say, wow, he had it really worse than me. My life's not that bad. I should quit feeling sorry for myself and sort of pull myself together. He went through so much more, lost his 
his fortune, lost his daughters, lost his son. These horrific events. What am I complaining about? I didn't tell you this story to make you feel better about your circumstance. It's not the reason I present it to you. Too often in life we do that. We have a friend or a loved one who begins to share with us something going on in their life. And we're so busy thinking about we want what we want to say rather than listening to our friend that as soon as they take a breath, we jump in with a story that we think is worse. Oh, you think that's bad? Well, let me tell you about my boss's aunt's second cousin's nephew. And let me tell you the suffering that they're going through. I hope you understand that doesn't help your friend when you do that, when you try to one-up their story of grief and suffering and affliction. It's actually tremendously hurtful to that person. When they're sharing with you their suffering, they don't need to hear another story in that moment. They need you to listen to them. I hope that you're not the kind of person who one-ups stories of suffering, and I also hope that you're not the kind of person in your own life that you just try to psych yourself up and self-motivate yourself into thinking that things aren't as bad in your life as they could be. You understand, things aren't as bad in your life as they could be, but that in no way, shape, or form takes away the affliction that you're facing in life. I completely understand that there are starving children other places in the world and that you have food. And I understand that the chemo room down on 8th Street or on 2nd Street, is filled up every week with people who are taking treatments, and you're thankful not to be there. I understand that. I understand that you can look around at people close to you and people around the world, and you can say, well, they have it worse than me. I understand that. But affliction is affliction. And the Bible doesn't call us to compare yours and mine and to weigh them out and to see whose is worse. The Bible doesn't call us to stuff it down and pretend like it doesn't hurt or it's not painful. The Bible calls us to be honest about it, and that's what the psalmist is doing in this section. He doesn't say everything that he could say about his affliction, but he says, look, I'm afflicted. Look, in this life you will face affliction. The psalmist is telling you that. Jesus promised you that. In this world you will have trouble. You'll have trouble. In this life, you will be derided, especially as a Christian, if you want to live your life according to biblical truth and biblical principles, and you're going to orient your beliefs and your lifestyle and your thinking and all of it according to what the Word of God says. You can expect to be derided, ridiculed, mocked, not laughed with, but laughed at. If you're going to orient your life around the Word of God, you can expect, like the psalmist, to look around and to say, I'm surrounded by people who have no regard for God's Word, by wicked people. And it's a distressing thing. If you're going to orient your life around the Word of God, you can rest assured that just like the psalmist says, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law, that as your love and your delight for God's Word grows, your hatred for sin... And how much it bothers you will also grow. Verse 54, if you're going to orient your life around the Word of God, you're going to find yourself saying, I don't feel like I really belong here. I feel like a stranger. I feel like an exile. I feel like somebody who's an outcast. I don't feel like I fit 
I'm sojourning. You need comfort. You don't need me to come alongside of you and to say, well, someone else has it worse. And you don't need to try to convince yourself that it could be worse in your situation. You just need comfort and affliction. And the psalmist is telling you where you can find it. How, question number two, did the Word of God comfort the psalmist? I want you to see six truths. How did the Word of God comfort the psalmist? Number one, the Word of God gives hope to the people of God. Gives us hope. Hope is a future-oriented thing, and the psalmist talks about it in verse 49. Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. Hope looks to the future. And the Bible says lots of things about the future that have not happened yet. I'm aware that the Bible says in the future things will go from bad to worse. It's a real biblical idea. But you know what else the Bible says? The Bible says that in the future, when God begins a work in your life, He'll bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. That's in the future. If you're here today, that's in the future. And the Bible says, this is Jesus speaking, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You can quote to me all the Pew studies, Barna studies, all the surveys and all the stuff about how church is declining, no one's going to church. This is what I know. In the big, wide, global scale, the church will be just fine. Because Jesus said he's going to build it. Might it disappear in Odessa, Texas? It might. But Jesus will build his church. The Bible says Jesus is going to come back for his people. And we can debate and we can argue and we can have conversation about when that's going to happen and what it's going to be like in the timeline of all of that. The big takeaway is that he is going to come back. He's promised to come back for his people. And when he comes back, there will be a final defeat of sin and wickedness, a reckoning of all wrongs, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth for his people. That's all in the future, and it gives you hope in the present. Biblical hope is not wishy-washy, it's not soft, it's not that might happen, fingers crossed, if we're lucky. It's certainty, and it's confidence that God will keep His Word about the things that He's promised to do in the future, so we have hope. Secondly, how does the Word of God comfort us? The Word of God tells us that God remembers His Word. Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. Obviously, these two ideas are connected. We have hope because God has given us His word, and God always keeps His word. Grammatically, the psalmist is making a request of God here. He's asking God to remember. If you've read the whole Bible, you know God always remembers. He never forgets. His people forget. We forget a lot, but God always remembers. I don't know about your house, but in my house we have children, and sometimes they forget. Got to clean my room. Got to take out the trash. Forgot to clear the table. Got to do what you just asked me to do. Adults forget just as much as children. We forget names. You ever been in public and you see somebody and you go, they go to my church, what's their name? I have no idea. I think I know it. You search them up on Facebook really quick. 
Who is that? Who is that? I don't know. I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I forget your names. That may be disappointing to you because I'm your pastor, but sometimes I see you in public and I recognize your face and I care about you and I might even know what's going on in your life and sometimes there's nothing up here. So I just look at you and say, hey, you, how are you? It's so good to see you. We forget things. We forget commitments and appointments. You know the feeling of that. You realize, oh, I was supposed to be there. I was supposed to do this thing. Kind of sounds like your kids and the picking up the house and the laundry and the table. We forget things. We get into the fall in Odessa and we forget just how hot 108 degrees is. And then it rolls around in the spring and it starts getting warm and we're ready for summer and we talk about we're ready for the heat and we forget how cold 10 degrees was and how hot 108 was. We forget things. God never forgets anything. He always remembers His Word. When God makes a promise to His people, He never forgets it. All of the stories in the Old Testament where God's people remind God of what He has already told them, they don't think that God has actually forgotten it. They're actually trying to find comfort in God's Word. God, You have said this thing. You said it. It's your word. And it hasn't happened yet, so it's still in the future, so we have hope in it. God remembers his word. Number three, the word of God is unchanging. It's unchanging. Verse 52, when I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort. God's word is from of old. Have you ever wondered why we need all these books in the Bible, these old books, these ancient books? Why do we need them? What is the value of them? You understand that part of what God was doing in giving these books successively over time to His people was establishing that His Word would be the same yesterday, today, and forever, that it would be consistent. His Word is from of old, and it has not changed today. It's unchanging. You live in a world where everything changes, don't you? Fashion changes quickly. I've been out of high school for just over 20 years, and in my lifetime, we have gone from there is no such thing as Crocs, they weren't invented when I was in high school when I graduated, to there's Crocs and everybody wore them. Then we went through a phase of only weird people wear Crocs. I don't know why you're wearing Crocs. And now, today, based on the number of Crocs laying on the floor of my house in various places, either the Coleman's are way out of fashion or Crocs are back into fashion. But fashion changes, doesn't it? What you have on today will look odd to your kids someday, and they'll look at photos of you and say, I can't believe you wore that. Technology changes quickly. Someone in my house just a few weeks ago asked an honest question, weren't trying to be funny at all, said, Dad, how did y'all take pictures before iPhones were invented? I said, that's a good question. We didn't have apps, but we had these things called cameras, digital cameras and 
You know, the original digital camera could hold like five pictures on it, and we were so impressed. And before that, there was film. Rolled it in the thing, and you had to take it out and drop it at the store, and they mailed it off somewhere and called you when it came back. The technology changes. Technology we have today won't be the technology that we have tomorrow. Fashion changes. All sorts of things change in life. God's Word is from of old. And when the psalmist stopped to think about the fact that God's Word was from of old, he said, I take comfort that there's a rock under my feet that's not going to change. Jesus talked about that, didn't he? He talked about two men building a house. You can build on the sand, which is shifting and changing, and it's here and it's gone, or you can build on a rock, which is the Word of God. Your life will be stable and secure. It doesn't mean the wind isn't going to beat against you. It doesn't mean affliction isn't going to come. It doesn't mean the storm's not going to beat against that house. It just means that if you build on something that's unchanging, you have a strong foundation. How did the Word of God comfort the psalmist? It gave him hope, told him that God remembered, reminded him that God's Word was unchanging. Number four, moves us to worship. The Word of God moves us to worship. Verse 54, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. As I find myself with this feeling that I don't belong here or that I belong in another place, I have songs and those songs are based on your statutes, on your word. I'm going to sing about your word in the midst of my sojourning, my affliction, and that's going to be a comfort to me. There's an old quote, it's always attributed to Martin Luther. I have never been able to find where he said it, if he said it. So I offer it to you with fear and trembling. But the quote goes like this, At home, in my own house, there's no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. I promise you, we don't want you to come in this room so that we can manipulate your emotions and get you to feel a a wild, crazy thing. But I've found this to be true in my own life, that many times I sit down for personal devotions and for personal prayer, and it's a struggle, and it's difficult, and it's challenging, and you have to be disciplined in those things. And that what I need weekly, maybe twice a week, is to gather with the people of God in this room and to sing with them. And that the singing of God's people in the midst of our sojournings, as we gather together and we sing God's statutes together, that it changes something in me. It comforts me. It strengthens me. It encourages me. I understand that there's times in your life where you come in this room and we sing. And because of the affliction that you carry into this room, you feel like you can't sing. That's a real experience. You just think, I don't, I can't. It's not there. I'm going to tell you, on those days, you really need to be here. You need to let everyone else in this room sing for you and sing with you. And when you walk in this room and you can sing, I hope that you do sing. Because we're not here to perform for you. Our band is not here to put on a concert, not here to put on a show, not here to entertain. They're here to lead us, the people of God, in singing the statutes of God, singing the truth of the gospel, and you might sing off-key, 
and you might come in at the wrong time, and you may not have any rhythm, but the person next to you might need you to sing today. The people of God need you to sing when we gather together in this room. The Word of God moves us to worship. I do know that this quote is from Luther. You can trace this one down on your own. He said, next to the Word of God, music deserves the highest praise. The gift of language combined with the gift of song was given to man that he should proclaim the Word of God through music. We always think of Luther as this great reformer of doctrine, which he was. He was also a great reformer in worship. And he wrote songs, and he wrote hymn books, and he moved the people of God from a position of coming to worship to watch what was happening at the front to coming to worship to participate in what was happening in the room, singing, hearing the Word of God and responding in song. So the Word of God moves us to worship. Number five, how does the Word comfort us? The Word of God encourages us to remember God's Word. This is connected to the second point, God remembers, and because God remembers, we can remember. We should remember. God always remembers His promises, and that's the only reason that we have any hope in remembering them. The Word of God encourages us to remember. Verse 55, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. How do you remember God's Word? Well, you should read it. You should meditate on it. You should memorize it. We've talked in Psalm 119 that for most of us, the challenges we have with memorization come from an unwillingness to meditate, to fill our mind with the Word of God. You read it, you think about it, you mull it over, you go back and read it again, you come to this place where we teach it and we read it and we sing it, and you just do that over and over and over again so that you remember God's Word. I don't know if you've read the Old Testament on either side of the book of Psalms, but it's pretty much a story of God's people forgetting. From beginning to end, from Eden all the way through Malachi, they forget. They forget who God is. They forget what God said. They forget what God called them to do. They forget who God called them to be. They forget over and over and over and over again. May we not be people who forget but teach our kids to remember. Last, the Word of God brings blessing to those who keep it. Verse 55 and verse 56, he says, I keep your law, the blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. And I want to be honest with you, I'm reading out of the ESV. In the ESV, verse 56, it reads, This blessing has fallen to me. And I did some checking this last week. That word blessing is not actually in the original not in the Hebrew, and many of your translations don't have that word blessing if you're not reading out of an ESV. Many of your translations leave that word out, and they just say something to the effect of, this is where I'm at, this is what has come to me, this is what's left. There's a pronoun there, and the reference is not really that clear in the Hebrew. But what it seems to be saying is that at the end of all that the psalmist has gone through, through all the affliction and all the derision, through all the wickedness that surrounds him, through all of the things in his life that he wishes weren't the way that they are, he's found a source of comfort in the Word of God. He says that twice. 
And he comes to the end, and at the end of this stanza, he's not saying that everything has been changed. He's not saying that all the clouds have gone away. He's not saying that all the sad things have become unsad. He's just saying, this is what I have at the end of all of it. I've kept your word. I've oriented my life around your word and your promises and your commands. And I think the idea in the ESV is correct, that he views that as a blessing. He's not just wringing his hands, distraught that that's what he has, but he's celebrating the fact that at the end of all of it, I do have this. I have your word, and I've set my life to keep it. That's a blessing. That's different than the person who sets out to keep God's law so that they can get a blessing. This is the idea that the very keeping of God's word is a blessing. Father, as your people, we stop. Lord, we just want to confess that there are things in our lives that are difficult. We don't want to compare one affliction to another. We don't want to try to outdo each other in affliction. We don't want to minimize our own affliction or anyone else's. But Lord, we can relate to these things. We feel the weight of life is heavy. It's beyond what we can manage. Lord, and we recognize that you are putting us in circumstances in life where we will not be able to rely on ourselves, but we have to rely on you. And that you have the power to raise the dead. You did that in your son, Jesus. Father, we are grateful that we have your word. And we're grateful... That in the midst of affliction and derision and wickedness, in the general sense that we don't belong here, we're thankful that we have a rock to stand on and to build on, something solid, something sound, something unchanging. Father, I pray for people in the room this morning who are heavy under the weight of just affliction, and I pray that your word would bring comfort to them. I pray that they would commit themselves to read your word and to think about it and to meditate on it, to keep it. Father, we're thankful that because we have your word in the midst of great suffering, when sorrow rolls over us like a sea billow, that we have hope because of what Christ has done and what Christ will do. We have hope because of the promises about Jesus that we find in the Bible. Lord, before we rush off, we want to worship. We want to sing together. We want to encourage each other through our singing that we believe these things and that we want to build our lives on these things. So, Lord, as we lift our voices and sing together, we pray that you would be honored and we pray that we would be changed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.